0: Let us take our Bibles as we turn to the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, and we'll read the verses 1 through 18. Our text is taken from this passage, the verses 8 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord our God. would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then begins our text, verses 8 through 14. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings... These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That concludes the text. We'll continue reading to the end of verse 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So far, our scripture reading. And you may benefit from keeping your Bible open. This is a very challenging passage to understand. And I will be referring closely to individual words and phrases, so you may find it easier to follow the sermon if you can refer to the Bible passage as we go along. After the sermon, in response to God's word, we will sing about the heavenly work of our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, from hymn 42, the verses 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, how would you explain to somebody what being a Christian is really all about? Now, when I have conversations with the youth of my congregation in Bunbury and in catechism classes, it becomes apparent that the average person today no longer knows what it means to be a Christian. Most of our youth know. But when they get into conversations with non-Christians at secular schools or university or in the workplace or neighbours, there's a recurring theme that comes out. Because the questions, if... If people start asking them questions about what it means to be a Christian, typically the questions they get asked are all about the rules. So you're a Christian, so that means you're not allowed to get drunk, right? And you're not allowed to have premarital sex, and you have to go to church, right? And then the follow-up questions are often along these lines, so... So what's going to happen to you if you don't read the Bible? And you have to pray. So what happens if you don't? See, in the minds of the average person today, that's what being a Christian is. Being a Christian means sacrificing. Sacrificing good things. Sacrificing the better things, the fun things of life. Sadly, we live in a time where the average person today no longer will necessarily know what it means to be a Christian. We cannot assume that when we use the label Christian that people really understand what that is. Now, I have three comments to make about this common understanding about Christianity the first one is that when you get asked questions like this, you can tell people that the kinds of things that God forbids are things forbidden because he is wise and he knows that they are inherently wrong and they're inherently destructive. And so when God forbids hatred and strife and selfishness and covetousness or sexual morality or any other sin. He is forbidding it because it harms and it destroys. The second thing you can say in response to questions like this is that being a Christian isn't just about the things that you can't do. It's also about the things that you can do. It's about good things, wholesome things. And when God requires something, it's because it is something that promotes life and it promotes relationships. So when God requires faithfulness in a marriage, it's because it's going to promote human relationships so that they flourish. And that's the kind of thing God wants. He calls us to show things like love and joy and patience and peace and gentleness and kindness Good things. Even the day of rest is a good thing. But thirdly, and most importantly, being a Christian is not, first of all, about sacrificing yourself. Being a Christian is first of all about knowing and believing and trusting the sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ has made for us. In the Belgic Confession, Article 29, an article many of us immediately think about as the article that deals with the marks of the true church and the false church. But tucked in the middle of that article is also a section dealing with the marks of Christians. And it mentions things like Christians flee from sin, Christians pursue righteousness... Christians do sacrifice, for sure. But that's not the first thing it says. The first thing it says is they believe in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. What do Christians do? Christians appeal constantly to the blood, suffering, and death, and obedience of Jesus Christ, in whom they have forgiveness of their sins through faith in Him. And that's why in Lord's Day 12, when we're asked the question, why are you called a Christian? Our answer is, because I'm a member of Christ by faith. Being a Christian, first of all, is about clearly seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's especially something that we can reflect on at this time of the year. Lord willing, coming Thursday is Ascension Day. We look back a number of weeks, and we've had Good Friday and Easter. Being a Christian is about constantly living with with that perspective, looking back to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, looking up to His return, looking up to His rule, and looking forward to His return. If there's ever a book that encourages us to have that perspective, it's The Letter to the Hebrews. And it's from this letter that our text is taken this morning. And I proclaim it to you with this theme Christ's death is the once for all sacrifice for God's people. And we're here firstly about the need, secondly, about the character of, and thirdly, the effect of this once for all sacrifice. So Christ's death is the once for all sacrifice for God's people. Firstly, we hear about the need for this once for all sacrifice. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews is a letter that frequently quotes the Old Testament and applies it to the work of Jesus Christ, and in Hebrews 10, the Old Testament passage that's being quoted and applied is Psalm 40, and in your Bibles, you'll see it in verses 5, 6, and 7, depending on your edition, it might be in italics, it might be set out like poetry, but that's a direct quote from Psalm 40. And we sang that part corresponding to Psalm 40 earlier. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now what the author to the Hebrews does, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is take these words from Psalm 40 and put them on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then come the words of Psalm 40. So what the author is doing here is teaching us something about the purpose of Christ's coming. Christmas, his coming into the flesh, his taking on our humanity. He writes about that extensively in chapter 2. What is the goal, what is the purpose of the Lord Jesus taking on humanity? He explains that by saying that as the Lord Jesus comes into the world He is saying these words of Psalm 40. Because the Lord Jesus coming into the world is a voluntary act. It's an act of the love of God. It's an act that God did not have to do. But in his love for sinners, for his bride, the Lord Jesus comes into the world as the bridegroom. And What's that coming all about? What's the real purpose of it? Psalm 40 is going to tell us the answer. Because the Lord Jesus Christ understood the Psalms, the Psalms are about Him. Remember, after he is resurrected from the dead and he's journeying to Emmaus and there are two disciples with him and they have all kinds of questions about this news that they've heard that Jesus has been resurrected and he has died. And what does Jesus do? He opens the scriptures with them. He shows them that what he is doing has been foretold in the Old Testament prophecies he also opens the book of psalms with them psalms like psalm 40 and now what the author to the hebrews does here is he explains what the words of psalm 40 mean by dividing what's quoted in verse 5 6 and 7 by dividing it into two parts so the first part is verse 5 and 6 and the second part is verse 7 And you can see that because he quotes these two parts again in verse 8 and verse 9. And it mentions there in verse 8 and verse 9, the end of verse 9, the first and the second. And what's meant by this the first and the second is the two parts of Psalm 40 that he's quoted. The first, he repeats in verse 8, that's this part, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. That's the first. And then the second is what's quoted in verse 9, behold, I have come to do your will. So as the Lord Jesus enters the world, these are the two things on his lips. The first being, God's not pleased with sacrifices. The second being, I've come to do your will. What does that mean? Well, let's take the first part, that God isn't pleased with sacrifices. Why would that be the first thing that the Lord Jesus says as he comes into the world? What are sacrifices about? Well, if we look at the big picture of the history of mankind, the sacrifices, as we're familiar with them from the Old Testament tabernacle and later the temple, the sacrifices are necessary rituals that are there because of the fall into sin. In the beginning, before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoy perfect communion with God. There's no need for sin offerings, and for burnt offerings, and for animals to be killed. Because they are with God. But what happens as a result of sin is that they're they're cast out of the Garden of Eden, The way to the tree of life is closed. And now they're under the curse of death and banishment. And so in that new dispensation after the fall, God shows that despite mankind's sin, he is a God of grace. And time and again he announces grace to sinners. Right at the beginning... The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And in the life of Israel, the entire sacrificial system is reminding and teaching God's people that although they are sinners and although they don't deserve access to the tree of life, God is going to provide a Messiah and the Messiah is going to come and He's going to die on their behalf. And so, as a result, they are going to be reconciled to God. Sinners though they are, they are yet received by God. And for that to happen, punishment for sin is essential. See, in here we start to get a sense of what the sacrificial system is really about, even though there are a multitude of different kinds of sacrifices. At the heart of it all is the idea Of animals dying, death. This is my death, your death, the death of sinners, which all sinners deserve before a righteous and holy God, spiritual death, eternal death. And through the sacrifices, the Lord is teaching his people sin does separate you from God, sin does result in death. Sin is very serious. Don't minimize sin. But God's also teaching his people, I provide a way out. You don't die. That's what the message of those sacrifices was. For the Israelite, the message was the animal dies in your place. Now in the Old Testament, there was a multitude of sacrifices and the author to the Hebrews by quoting Psalm 40 is going to make mention of several of them. You'll see them mentioned in verse 8, sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, all offered according to the law. Now the sacrifices, the first one mentioned, could be a reference here to what was called the fellowship offering or the peace offering, and the animal was killed, there's the common element, the animal was killed, but you would only burn the fat, and then the Israelite and his family could enjoy the meal, and this was a very visible picture of restored relationships and of fellowship with God. The second one mentioned is offerings, and this can refer to things like the grain offering or cereal offering, something typically made out of flour, like some cakes or baked goods, even raw grain, oil would be added or frankincense, and and, an offering that showed dependence on the Lord. Next mentioned is the burnt offerings. And in this case, after the animal was killed, the entire animal was consumed with fire, except the skin. And before this happened, the Israelite had to place his hands on the animal, showing an act of transfer. The animal is his substitute. And last mentioned are the sin offerings. Here, too, there was an offering made as a way of pointing to atonement for sin. In all of these sacrifices, the overall bottom line is sin deserves death, but a substitute dies instead. And so taking them together especially with those added words at the end of verse 8, these are offered according to the law, the author of Hebrews is showing that here we have a picture of the entire Levitical sacrificial system as required by the law of God. And it's concerning this entire sacrificial system that, that Jesus now says as, as he comes into the world, he puts these words on his lips That God is not pleased with them. Verse 5, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Verse 8, nor taken pleasure in them. And here we start to wonder what is meant. Didn't God desire these sacrifices? Isn't he the one who said that the Israelites had to do them? And doesn't the Bible even give instances where the Lord is pleased with sacrifices? He was pleased with Abel's, not Cain's. Well, the point here is that even though the Lord was pleased with sacrifices when his people offered them in faith, after all, he established them, the point is that nonetheless, this whole sacrificial system and all these sacrifices are inherently flawed. And they're flawed in two ways. Number one, they're incomplete. Yes, God wanted sacrifices, but God's people time and again were reminded that they shouldn't fool themselves into thinking that as long as they did the outward rituals, God would be happy and everything would be well. The sacrifices had to be offered with a contrite heart, And the sacrifices had to be offered in combination with a godly life. Think of how the Lord Jesus Christ constantly needs to declare condemnation and even woe on the Pharisees. They may have been going through the outward religious rituals, but they neglected the more important matters like mercy and love. So the Lord isn't satisfied simply with the religious rituals. More is needed. They're incomplete. The second flaw, and this is the really important one, that Hebrews is drawing attention to is they're incapable. Number one, they're incomplete. Number two, they're incapable. Not one single sacrifice could take away a sin. Not A thousand sacrifices combined could take away a sin. Yes, God was pleased with them. God established them. God had a purpose for them. But could they take away sins? Verse 4 clearly says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. God is a just God. And we're familiar with what our catechism has to say about this. That in his justice, man has sinned. God says because man has sinned, man should pay. Sacrifices can never remove sin. A much greater sacrifice is needed for that. A, a once for all sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus. That is what his coming is all about. And that brings us to our second point, the character of this once-for-all sacrifice. Because as the Lord Jesus comes into the world, the second thing that is on his lips is, Behold, I have come to do your will. And unlike the first thing, the sacrifices, which cannot remove sins, this this second thing, Jesus coming, Jesus coming and doing the will of the Father, that is not going to end with the same disappointment as the Old Testament sacrifices. They can't remove sin. And that is why our Lord Jesus Christ abolishes them. That's the word used in verse 9. He abolishes the first In order to establish the second. Jesus Christ comes and does what those first sacrifices have all been pointing towards. And in that way he fulfills them and removes the need for them. And he does that by carrying out the will of his Father. Central to understanding what being a Christian is about is to think about what our Savior does by taking on our human flesh, a body, a body very familiar with sickness and death, a body very familiar with understanding what it's like to live in a fallen, broken world, a body that submits to the will of the Father in everything. Now, first of all, that involves submission to God's will in the sense of His law. Throughout the life of our Savior, He is constantly submitting to the perfect and righteous requirements of His Father. He obeys in everything. Not once will you find an example where our Savior falls short of God's commandments. In everything, He shows perfect love for the Father, perfect love for those around Him, the neighbor. But more, our Savior also submits himself to God's will in the sense of his redemptive plan. Think of him in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony and in suffering and saying, not my will, but your will be done. Our Savior submits to God's will, his plan for him, even though that plan means he is going to a cross even though it means he's going to experience the hellish agony of God's wrath, even though it means he's going to experience death in its fullness, in our place. That's why he's come. And that's what he is going to do. His death on the cross is not just an unfortunate accident. It is not just some unfortunate human injustice. No, it happens according to the will of God because this is how sinners like you and like me are going to be saved. On the cross, we see the high priest, Jesus, and we see the sacrifice that the whole Old Testament system has been calling for and and pointing towards Jesus Christ, true God. True man, righteous man, suffers the wrath of God, suffers the death that all those Old Testament sacrifices were about, suffers the death that I deserve, that you deserve, in full, in all its horror. And in his sacrifice, we see things that we don't see with the Old Testament sacrifices. Oh, there's blood, there's death, but in his sacrifice there is not an animal who resists. No, he is the Lamb of God. He does not resist, he submits. He is both the priest and the willing sacrifice. He voluntarily lays down his life for sinners like you and me. And that's why, with his sacrifice, there's a different verdict. The verdict is not, this is a sacrifice that I have not taken pleasure in. No, this is the Son in whom the Father does take pleasure. And this is a sacrifice in whom God delights in, for it's the sacrifice he has designed. And that's why when this sacrifice happens, All of creation rejoices. We read how the earth shakes. We read how dead people are raised. Death itself is overcome. We read how the temple curtain is torn pointing to the fact that the entire Old Testament system of sacrifices is no longer necessary because in this death of Jesus, the power of sin is broken and death has been endured to its full. And now the people of God have life and are accepted by him now and forever. In the Old Testament, we do see wonderful things in the sacrifices, but they're they're at best shadows. And in Jesus Christ, we see the real thing that those shadows have always been about. And now because of him, paradise is unlocked and the way back to the tree of life is opened up. And that's why the author to the Hebrews flowing on from this text is going to make a number of delightful contrasts between the Old Testament priests and the great high priest and between their sacrifices and his once-for-all sacrifice. And you'll see that contrast in verse 11, 12, 13, 14. Their work is never-ending. They stand, it says, daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Do you see the contrast? They do it daily. They do it repeatedly. Jesus, on the other hand, says verse 14, by a single offering. Verse 12, a single sacrifice. He has offered it for all time. Verse 11 says, the Old Testament priests stand they stand. They can't sit down. Their work's never done. Jesus, says verse 12, sat down. His sacrifice is complete. And so he sits at the right hand of God. Their sacrifices, says verse 11, can never take away sins. But Jesus' sacrifice, says verse 12, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. Verse 14, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This, brothers and sisters, is the message of the gospel that being a Christian is really about. The sacrifice of our Savior. Knowing that even though we as Christians are still very much sinners and imperfect and flawed, we have a perfect Savior who has offered a perfect sacrifice and our sins really are forgiven, there is no more condemnation and the way to God is open. And that brings us to our final point, the effect of this once-for-all sacrifice. Because what's the impact of this sacrifice? And this is a big point in Hebrews. The first impact is, We don't need that Old Testament set of sacrifices anymore. Verse 9 says, plainly, Jesus has abolished that. It's fulfilled. There are shadows. We now have the real thing. And so today, when we have sacraments, when we have baptism, there's no blood, there's water pointing back to his blood. When we have Lord's Supper, we have bread and wine, there's no blood, there are signs pointing back to his blood. Today, when we worship the Lord, we don't come carrying our private lamb or goat or bull. We come clinging in faith to the sacrifice of our Savior, knowing that because of that, we are dressed in white robes of righteousness. But there's more. Verse 10 also says that by that will, we have been sanctified. Sanctified. Where does that word sanctified occur more often? It occurs throughout the Old Testament because it's another word for holy, set apart. It's a word we even use in our baptism form. Parents are asked about their children. Do you confess that though they're sinners, they are sanctified in Christ? This is a covenantal word. And it's a word that refers to the fact that as part of God's people, we are set apart in the covenant of grace. In ourselves, we're not holy. In ourselves, we're not qualified to serve God. But that's the promise of the gospel for believers and their seed. In the sacrifice of Christ, we are holy. We are set apart. We are clean. But there's more yet. Verse 14 also goes on to say, By a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this word perfected has a very special meaning. It's it's a word that can have the sense of being consecrated for service. So the idea here is that in ourselves as sinners, we can't come into God's presence. We're locked away from the tree of life. But when we believe, when we are covered with the all-sufficient blood of our Savior's sacrifice, we are sanctified and set apart, we are perfected, we are ready and accepted to serve. And that's why flowing on from these verses comes the encouragement of verse 19, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. See, through the blood of Jesus, we can now come into the presence of God. We don't have to be afraid even when we come with our sins and our shortcomings and our failings that he's going to reject us. Oh, When we come through the blood of the Lord Jesus with all our flaws, with all our sins. God accepts us. He hears us when we pray. He receives us when we worship as we do in a day like today. And he receives us when our life is one of worship. Brothers and sisters, what does it mean to be a Christian? Good Friday is past. Ascension Day comes ahead. But this is the perspective that we need to keep having as Christians. Being a Christian is not, first of all, looking at yourself and your sacrifice and what you are doing. It's part of being a Christian, but it's not what being a Christian is about, first of all. Being a Christian is seeing this big picture. Being a Christian is first of all about looking back to Good Friday, looking back to the message of Christ's suffering and death every day of your life and finding great encouragement from that. It's no coincidence. In the Belgian Confession, when Article 21 makes its confession about the sacrifice, satisfaction of Christ, our only high priest, what's one of the texts referred to? Hebrews 10, verse 14. Listen to this. Here it says, We find comfort in his wounds, and we have no need to seek or invent any other means of reconciliation with God than this only sacrifice once offered by which the believers are perfected for all times. Hebrews 10, verse 14. Being a Christian is about looking back to the work of our Savior and his suffering and death. Being a Christian is about looking up to the fact that he's at the right hand of God. We've just had an election. There is going to be a new government and we can have our concerns. But brothers and sisters, being a Christian means also dealing with this in faith, looking to Christ, knowing that he rules at the right hands of God. All things happen according to his plan and by his will, and his church gathering work will continue. Being a Christian, looking back, looking up, and looking forward. Our text also says in verse 19, waiting from that time till his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Our Savior and High Priest comes back. And anyone who does not bow the knee to him in this life and confess him, on the last day, will be subject to him. The image here is an ancient one of enemies being under the feet of their conqueror, a, an image of complete submission. And that's why the message of Christianity is so important. That's why the message of the sacrifice of Christ is so critical. Because if you don't believe it, and if you don't live in light of that perspective... The day is going to come where you will bow the knee, and it's either going to be as one of his vanquished enemies when he returns, or it's going to be as one of his redeemed people. Do you have the right view of what being a Christian is about? Yes, brothers and sisters, when we understand this big picture, when we look back to his sacrifice up to his rule, forward to his return. There is sacrifice. He has given his all. How can we not give him our all? He he has rescued undeserving sinners like you and me and, and died on our behalf. Then how will we not then serve him, he who has shown us so much grace? And so, brothers and sisters, looking back, looking up, and looking forward, let us this week give him our all, a life of thanksgiving sacrifice for his glory. Amen.